Hey, good morning. Good to see you. You can uh, turn your Bibles open to Luke chapter 5, verse 33, if you haven't already. And uh, before we get into today's message, I have one quick mention for us. Um, something is uh, coming up in the fall called Financial Peace University. Uh, it's been a while since we've done this, but it's a, just a great life-changing um, kind of empowering way to look at your finances and and grow and your management of those. And so that's starting September 7th, and uh, it's going to be every Sunday for, I think, nine weeks at 3 p.m. So the, the reason we're telling you now is because uh, it is, it's open to the public and on Dave Ramsey's website, and it's already starting to fill up. So we want you to get in on that as quick as possible. We'll have sign-ups in the lobby in the next couple weeks. You can talk to Rich Berry, who's uh, our lead usher right back there. You can wave your hand. Rich is the beautiful man in the back. Not waving. There he is. There you go. Uh, and you can go ahead and uh, ask him any questions if you have them. And uh, that's, just put that on your calendar. It's going to be a great time. So, hey, let's, uh, let's pray uh, and, and we'll get into the, today's message. Uh, Father in heaven, we, we thank you that you are a good God. And uh, we ask you to meet us today. We pray that you would help us to see you accurately we pray that you'd help us to feel the things that are appropriate for being in your presence, the joy of your grace and uh, the peace of being in your presence. We also thank you, Lord, as we look forward to the, the week ahead and uh, celebrating the 4th of July. We, we thank you for the freedom we have and the people who have given and sacrificed that we, we might experience that. And we, we, we just have hearts of gratitude for that, Lord. And we, we pray now that you'd help us to hear you. and. And to grow in response to, to the one who brings true freedom, to Jesus, your son. So we, uh, we ask you, Lord, to, to help us hear you and respond to you in faith today. Amen. Well, we are looking at the life of Jesus, uh, as it's told in the Gospel of Luke. And uh, during the part of uh, the story that we are in right now, here in chapter 5, Jesus is growing in his attention. Like people, he's growing a crowd, his... Uh, his prestige is growing, and uh, he is in the public eye, and his reputation is increasing. And with that comes opposition. Jesus is beginning to get some pushback, and over the next three weeks, we're going to be looking at three controversies that are stirred up by Jesus' practices and words and uh, things about him that confound the religious leaders of his day. There are these things about Jesus that just don't fit the grid for his contemporaries. And so uh, with each one of these controversies, we learn something about who Jesus is. And um, Have you ever had an expectation of someone or a situation, and when, when you got to that person or got to that place, just things did not meet your expectations, right? And I mean, maybe it was like an expectation of a spouse, like you hoped that they would be more romantic, and after 50 years, they... Still don't buy flowers, or I don't know, or uh, or maybe an expectation of a friend that you thought, wow, we really click, and then you kind of get into it and you realize we're so different. Or or maybe uh, you expected a class to be a little bit more interesting, and it's kind of dull. Or you expected a work environment to be more productive, and it's just not. And and so the, those differences of expectations and reality do something for us. On one hand, it creates disappointment. Right? On the other hand, it, it tells us something about what other people value and about what we value and the distance between those things. And, and something kind of like that is happening in this story where the Pharisees, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, 
Uh, and even John's disciples, John is the, John the Baptist is the man who pointed the way to Jesus, who's kind of the forerunner to Jesus, preparing Israel for his coming. And, uh, the disciples of John and the disciples of the Pharisees are confounded by Jesus. And when it comes to how one approaches God, when it comes to the things a righteous person does, we just kind of expect things to go a certain way. We expect a, a person who takes a relationship with God seriously to do certain things, and yet Jesus doesn't fit the mold. He seems to break it. And Jesus actually neglects to do something that everyone in his day who took God seriously would do. Now, this is the controversy that we see in Luke, and it starts in verse 33. Uh, they, they said to him, that is the, a crowd of people, some, someone different than the last story, says to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. Yours eat and drink. Now, fasting, you have to understand, is, is this kind of central act of worship within first century Israel. That fasting is a regular part of their life. It is a major feature in ancient religious life. And people of Israel would fast on the Day of Atonement, the day that sacrifices were made for the sins of the people. They would, uh, uh, they would refuse to eat or drink, and they, they would have different kinds of fasts. In fact, the Pharisees would fast twice a day. Every Monday and Thursday, they would fast for Israel. And Jesus even referred to fasting in Matthew chapter 6. In the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, he refers to fasting as one of three acts of righteousness, along with giving to the needy and praying. He says, don't do your acts of righteousness in a way that is, right, showing off, right? Don't do it for other people to praise you. Do it for your Father who is unseen, right? And so this is one of the things he calls an act of righteousness. So fasting is this regular part of the worship experience of the people of Israel. And it's a way of t- connecting with God, really. It's a, it's a practice that says, I'm waiting for the day, God, when you will deliver our people. It's a way of showing repentance for the things that we have done in denial of God's lordship in our lives. It's a way of expressing the dissatisfaction of the status quo. We say, as Israel in the first century, we're saying, we're dissatisfied with our oppression, with Rome over us. We want you to change our situation. We hope in you, God, to right the world. And so we fast. And yet, for all the prominence of this form of worship in Israel... Jesus apparently doesn't do it, or at least not very often. We know he does it sometimes, but he doesn't do it often, and he doesn't hold his disciples to the practice. So the people around Jesus naturally ask, what's up with that? Like, why don't you and your disciples practice this? Instead, they say, you eat and drink while everyone else who takes God seriously is fasting. And so Jesus answers them with a question. Okay, he's a very wise teacher, and so he... he says this, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? See, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. Now, at first, this answer is a little bit strange, right? Like, this is a a, a mysterious response. So, like, why don't you and your disciples fast? And he says, Would you make the guests at a wedding fast uh, when they're with the bridegroom? Like, Okay, so would you make a wedding guest fast? Like, 
uh, when the attendants are with the groom, should they fast or should they feast? I mean, think about a modern wedding. When is the worst moment in a wedding? It's when the bride and groom are taking photos in between the ceremony and the stinking reception, right? Like, we all hate that moment. We're like, hurry up, get it done. We want to eat, right? And so uh, that's, we all know, right? Weddings are these moments where we party. And so what's Jesus saying here? Jesus is saying, uh, don't you know what time it is? Don't you know who you're around right now? See, look, Jesus doesn't reject fasting as a practice. He doesn't say, don't fast, it's bad. He, he says, fasting has an appropriate moment. And this is not one of them. Look what time it is. Look at who I am. Fasting is not appropriate for the moment and for the presence that I bring. And so he uses the imagery of a wedding. And I remember planning for our wedding, my mother-in-law being like, we cannot run out of food, which is funny because I don't think I ate at our wedding. But uh, she, was think- she would say, you know, we have to overbuy because the last thing we want to do is run out. Why? Because a wedding is a party and you want to... Br- this isn't a moment where you say, ah, oh, I'm on a diet, right? No, you like loosen up your belt a little bit, you go back for seconds, like you pop that top button, you just keep eating, right? And, and so that's, that's what you do at a wedding, all of you are like, that's what you do at a wedding, and I'm staying away from you. But um, Matt's a glutton. There we go. And so, uh, to, to make things even more pronounced, Jesus says, you, you can't make wedding guests fast when they're with the bridegroom. Not only do you not fast at a wedding, but when you're with the bridegroom. See, if you're with the groom, you party. It's a time for joy, not mourning, unless you're the ex. Right? And then it's a, time, it's a time for mourning, if you still want to be with the guy. But if you're celebrating the wedding... You're there to share in his joy and share in her joy. And that's, that's why you're there. And so Jesus is saying, let me tell you why you fast. You, you fast because you hope something will save you. Because you're crying out for some kind of salvation from your, your, your current reality. Uh, you're looking to God to fulfill his promises. And that's why you fast. You're, you're looking for things to change. And that's why you fast. Now, to really get the fullness of what Jesus is saying, to really understand the full reality of the metaphor he uses, you have to think about the entire context of what Jesus is speaking into and where he's come from. Jesus is a Jew, and he has this Bible that he's been reading along with his community. And you have to ask the question, who is the bridegroom in the Bible? See, today, if I say, I'm the bridegroom, you go, okay, great, who's the lucky girl, right? But when Jesus, in response to a question about fasting, says, I'm the bridegroom. My my disciples don't fast because they're with the bridegroom. What's he saying? See, the the bridegroom, he says, takes away the, the, the need for mourning and fasting. Who's the bridegroom in the Old Testament? Who's the great husband of Israel who removes her shame, who redeems Israel? And says, I relate to you like a husband to a wife. Who is it? Yahweh. It's God, the creator and covenant God of Israel. Who who compares himself to a husband in the book of Hosea. If you haven't read it, go read it. It is a trip. God says, I relate like a faithful husband to a faithless wife. And you've gone and you've chased after other gods. And yet I'm drawing you back to myself to receive you again preserve our covenant. 
And so this imagery is all throughout the prophets. Ezekiel 16, Jeremiah 2, Isaiah 54, and again in Isaiah 61. And God is like a husband to his people. He redeems them. It's a huge metaphor to understand the spiritual life from the vantage point of the Old Testament. See, the people had been unfaithful, and God remains this faithful one who unites the people to himself, who joins them to himself. It's beautiful imagery. And Jesus says, I'm the bridegroom. All that imagery, all that metaphor that you know from your Bible that's talking about God as husband. I'm here. It's me. Okay? And so he's saying, look. Look, uh, it's, look at what's right in front of you. Pay attention to what time it is. Pay attention to who's with you. Do so you fast because you long for salvation? I'm the one who saves you. You fast because you hope that God will pr- fulfill his promise. I'm the promise of God fulfilled in your midst. You, you hope in change and I'm the change you crave. You see, fasting, he says, doesn't make sense if you're with me. Fasting is about anticipation. Weddings are about fulfillment. He says there's going to be a day when the bridegroom will be taken away. Make no mistakes. And it's a very interesting kind of thing. You don't normally expect a bridegroom to leave the wedding and tell us over. But he says, look, there's a time when the bridegroom will be taken away. He's anticipating the bridegroom to go suffer. Right? There will be a day when Jesus will be taken, he'll, he'll go to the cross and he'll die. And that's an appropriate time to fast and mourn. And then, of course, he'll be raised from the dead and be resurrected and ascended to be with the Father. And he says, sure, you can fast then too in anticipation of my final return to set the world to rights. But, but now is not the time to fast. So Jesus tells them two parables and a proverb to help develop his point. He says in Luke, Luke says, that Jesus told them a parable. He says, no one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment, because if he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. See, to illustrate the situation, Jesus offers three no-one statements. No one tears, uh, uh, patches a cloth with, with new cloth, or te- patches a tear with new cloth. No one puts new wine into old wineskin. No one who loves the old wineskin wine will love the new. And so the first no one is this idea of two different kinds of material, or, or a new patch and, and an old tear. And he says, nobody takes uh, new fabric and tries to patch up uh, old fabric. He says the result is that both end up destroyed. He says they don't go together. So what's he saying here? Jesus is, I think, saying, look, when, when the old thing is in disarray, when the old thing doesn't work, simply putting a new thing over it will only make things worse. Right? You're trying to patch something that doesn't work. And, and by the way, the new and the old just simply don't fit together. So what's the old thing? What's the new thing? So on one hand, we have to be careful because Luke does not present Christianity as a new thing. In fact, he goes to great lengths to show us that what Jesus brings is the fulfillment of the entire Old Testament. That it's actually an old thing, older than anything else. And yet, it comes in a fresh way. That what Jesus is bringing is a new covenant, a new agreement with his people. See, Jesus is God finally keeping his promise to Israel. But the combination of old ways of thinking, old ways of acting, and the fresh work of God don't 
go together. See, what Jesus brings is so substantially unique and final that it will not mix with the old paradigm for approaching God. It would be ruined if they were to impose the old system on the new way that Jesus was inaugurating. So he adds another parable and he says, no one puts new wine into old wineskins because if he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and all the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. Now Jesus uses common everyday wisdom to make his point. See, a wineskin was a pretty common device. It was a very simple device. You'd take an animal skin and like basically a neck and belly and you'd take the skin and clean it up and sew it and then uh, before you know it you've got a wine traveler or a porta party and you are like ready to go right like you've you've got your wine and you've got your wine skin and you're ready to roll now a new wine skin is fairly flexible right it, it, the skin can expand and which is important because the fermentation process of new wine is like releasing gas right the sugars are breaking down causing this reaction causing alcohol to form and co2 to come out and You've got to have some room for expansion. Uh, the old wineskins become brittle, right? And so they can't expand anymore. And uh, they're great for containing old wine, but they're horrible for containing new wine. I had a friend who makes his own beer, and uh, he put all the beer in bottles a little too early. Like, it was still, the beer was still fairly active in its fermentation process. And so his wife thought somebody was breaking into the garage one day and came out to find dozens of bottles just bursting and exploding all over the garage. Glass is flying everywhere, and beer is just sticking to everything, right? And so, like, this kind of disaster is the kind of thing that Jesus is saying, like, nobody would do this. This is just not, this is stupid. And so... Uh, New wine needs to be put in new wineskins. This fresh, active power of God to reign and rule in his people can't be contained in the old ways of the Pharisees. It it won't be contained in the Mosaic Code. It, It requires thinking and paradigms that are expandable to fit the kinds of people that Jesus is accepting to include Jew and Gentile alike, to to grasp that at the heart God is looking not for this exterior religiosity, but he's looking for a right relationship at the heart. Old and new ways can't be mixed without harming both. And the gospel, Jesus is saying, cannot be contained within the Judaism of his day. See, the new ways in which God is dealing with humanity through Jesus cannot be mixed with the old ways. And Jesus is the prophet like Moses that Deuteronomy 34 said would come, who brings a fresh message and ultimately, as the high priest, will bring a new covenant. But Jesus finishes with something of a proverb, and he he warns his audience and says this, No one, after drinking old wine, desires the new, for he says, The old is good. Okay, this is an interesting statement, right? Like, is Jesus saying, like, the old wine is better? So, like, what's all the point about needing a new wineskin? See, to understand the proverb, you have to grasp who is saying the old is good. See, those who are used to the old wine say it's better. Those who are familiar with the old say it's better. And they have no desire for new. See, they're satisfied with the wine they know. And so they don't have space or palate for the fresh work that God's bringing. So Jesus sees that, of course, many people will reject him. They will look at him and will refuse to see him as Messiah because they're stuck in what's familiar. They have no sense of their need for a new work of God and doing. 
the superior things that he does in and through Jesus the Messiah. Okay, are you with me? Yeah. All right. So let's ask the question then, like, what, what does this all have to say to us? Like, that's the text. Now, what does it mean for us? Like, how do we live in light of that? Um, I've got three things, maybe four, depending on time, uh, for us that are implications of this passage. The first thing is this. Um, we need to embrace Jesus as the great bridegroom. Now, okay, this sounds funny, all right? And you might think, I don't think grooms are that great. Um, let me tell you, this is a very rich, rich picture. You see, I, I think that we will continuously miss the profound depth of the love of God that he wants to pour into our lives if we don't become gripped by this imagery. Let me, let me tell you why. Uh, it, it, here's what this is about. See, God doesn't want to just be your savior. He doesn't just want to be your king. Surely he is those things and wants to be them. But he doesn't only want to be that. He wants to be something so deep and profound in your life that the only comparison is a husband to a wife. See, he wants to relate to you like a spouse. Now, before you get weirded out by that, understand that he is your creator This is, of course, what marriage is meant to do. It's meant to point us to the nature of God. God did not say, I'm going to make marriage because I think it will be good for these people. I think they will like it. He says, I'm going to make marriage an institution, a covenant thing, so that you can grasp the nature of who I am. The God of profound, steadfast love, covenant faithfulness, and righteousness. And once you grasp that, you will be able to relate to me. And he says, I'm the bridegroom. This means three things for us, that Jesus is the bridegroom. The first thing about Jesus being the bridegroom is this, that Jesus actually completes us. You see, when you go back to the first marriage in the Bible, in Genesis chapter 2, you see that there is one not good thing in creation. Adam is alone, and he is beginning to sense his aloneness. God has said, look, I want you to be fruitful, to multiply, to steward my creation, um, join on on my mission to to bring my shalom into the creation. And uh, as he's looking for a partner who will be his equal, he just finds that things don't match. And he names all the animals and gets to the end and realizes that only God can fulfill his greatest need. And his God gives him a gift, a partner who, who will be his equal. And who will complete him? And so, right, God says, you're getting very sleepy. He goes to bed. He has a surgery. And out of his side comes his wife. I don't, I don't know how that happened. But, and what does Adam say when he sees his wife for the first time? Wow, wow, man. Woman. And then he... You guys walked right into that one. All right, so... No, he's a bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, right? You're like me. Right? You complete me. She says, you had me at hello. And, and Sorry, a bad 90s joke. So here we go. So he, he gets that, that poetry means you complete me. Right? You, you complete me in, in a whole new way. Marriage in Genesis is about a kind of completion. And Jesus, as the great bridegroom for his people, sends us the message. And get this, friends, that we are not really complete. Until we have been enveloped by his completing love. See, what Jesus does by being the bridegroom is to say, okay, you're not complete. 
Okay, you, you don't have a spouse, you don't have kids, you don't, you don't have a job, you, you don't have money, you don't have education. All the things that the world says you need to be complete. It says none of them will make you complete, but I can. It says no, nothing can fulfill you and give you the kind of security and identity and, and completion that I give. And when you have me, you have completion, I, I, I complete you, and, and when you have me, when you have completion in me, you're durable, and you can handle things differently. Listen to Colossians 1, it's the Apostle Paul's great poem, declaring the cosmic supremacy of Christ over all things. He says this about Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God. Jesus makes God Im- visible to us. So the, he is the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, See, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Is this the kind of person who compliments you? No, this is the kind of person who completes you. He's the person you're created for the person through whom you are created. But, you know, we so easily trick ourselves into thinking that our completion doesn't come with our Creator and our Redeemer, but with creation itself. We're complete with stuff. Right? Oh, I'm complete because I have this person. Oh, I'm complete because I've finally made the... the um, the money I want. I finally have made uh, the position at the firm I want. But Jesus says these are just shadows of the kind of completion and security and identity that come when you have me. Because when you have the bridegroom, you can lose all those other things. You can be insulted. You can be offended. And you know what? You won't really be shaken because you know I'm complete. I'm complete in him. The second thing that it means for us to embrace Jesus as the bridegroom is this, that it, that it means a relationship of permanent love. Now, here's the thing um, about marriage. It doesn't strike us anymore as a permanent thing because we've so lost that picture. I, I heard this saying recently. I don't remember uh, if I've said it, so if I have, excuse me, but uh, when I, this one couple reached their 50-something anniversary and... Uh, the younger couple said, well, how'd you do it? Like, how'd you make it that far? And this, the older gentleman said uh, to the younger guy, you know, we just come from a different generation. So, well, what do you mean? So, well, uh, when something breaks, we don't, we don't throw it away. We fix it. Right? Woo! All right. How about that? And so marriage is supposed to be a picture of permanent love. It's supposed to be a picture of continuing and steadfast commitment to each other for a lifetime. But when we think of marriage in our context, when we think about it in our society, it just seems so broken and it seems like it's here today and it's gone tomorrow. And, and so the power of Jesus as a bridegroom just doesn't grip us. 
And we kind of flinch when we think about God as husband and we think, isn't that maybe sexist or isn't that maybe a negative thing? So many husbands are clueless and abusive and passive and checked out and they run around and they're faithless. But why do faithless husbands bother us so much? Why do faithless husbands make us so angsty? Right? I think it's because we know in our hearts they shouldn't be. That they should express permanent love. That they should be faithful. And where do we get that sense? We get that sense from the one who is the husband. Who is the faithful one. Who is the permanent lover. See, for Jesus to be the groom means he's deeply and permanently loving. It means that when you connect in with Jesus, he's going to act towards you in a way that no husband, no matter how good he is, can act towards you with utter and permanent love. The kind of love that never runs out, it doesn't grow cold, it has no limits, it has no conditions. And he says, what greater demonstration of my permanent love can I offer you than the cross? He says, I've already done it. I've already showed you that I will give myself and I will give my life and lay it down so that I can satisfy my love and my holiness, my justice and my righteousness and have relationship with you so that I can bring an end to sin and evil and not bring an end to you. Because I want you in relationship with me. And so... We have a permanent love in Christ. The third thing that it means to embrace him as the bridegroom means it's a relationship that demands exclusivity. And let me me explain what I mean here. See, God being like a husband tells us something about the kind of relationship he summons us to. Do you see? Again, go back to Adam and Eve. In the first marriage before you have sin, wrecking marriage, is uh, you have a description of this couple. The description is perfect. It's a, well, it's a, it's a very apt description of the kind of relationship God calls us to. You see, their marriage was defined as naked and unashamed. How about that? Naked and unashamed. You know what that means? It means that they were vulnerable and safe. It's a safe vulnerability. And God says, look, I'm going to get totally vulnerable with you. I, I'm going to become the person... And I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, I'm going to be forsaken for you. I'm going to be totally vulnerable. Now, okay, imagine for a second that someone says to you, I want to be in a relationship with you. I really, I like you. I want you to be honest with me, I want you to be vulnerable with me, I want you to be naked before me, I want you to be totally committed to me and no one else, and I just want you to know that I'm going to be dating some other people. I'm just going to... Just to, I'm going to see some other folks. Just try some things out. Right? Okay, so we all know that that is really, really messed up. Right? Like this is a messed up kind of thing. This is not a good relationship. But on some level, this is what we do to God, don't we? We say to him, you know, I want you committed. I want you available. But I don't really feel like being exclusive with my allegiances. I don't really feel like I need to be vulnerable with you or your people. I don't really want you to have the power to speak into my life and guide it and lead it and shape it. See, because Jesus is infinitely completing to us, he's also infinitely loving to us, and he's also infinitely worthy of exclusive worship from us. 
You see, he actually wants to be all-sufficient as God in our lives. The only one, by the way, who can carry the burden of all-sufficient God, you know who that is? It's God. It's just not fair to put that burden on anybody else or on on anything else because it's a recipe for disappointment, disaster, dissatisfaction, with some other dis words, right? Disillusionment. Pick your dis word. It'll happen when you put the burden of God on something that is smaller than God. And so God says, look, I, I actually expect vulnerability and exclusivity of your allegiances and your loyalties. Because he says, look, I've set myself apart for you. That's what he says in John 17. I've sanctified myself. Why? How? Why? So I can sanctify them, so I can set them apart, his disciples. He's saying, I'm setting myself apart for you, I'm committed to you, but I want you, I'm setting you apart for me, for my purposes, my mission, my worship and my glory. And it's not an egocentric move, because he's actually due our worship. And he's actually good for us when he has it. Second thing, a couple more realities here that this passage brings up for us. The second so first is we embrace Jesus as the bridegroom. The second thing we need to embrace here is to we, we need to see Jesus and his way as an all-encompassing one. It, it, he doesn't mix well. Uh, Jesus is, is just, he doesn't mix well. Okay? So the message of the cloth and the wineskins is, is on one level about the utter uniqueness of Jesus and what he brings. You see... This isn't really a popular thing to to say, but Jesus is utterly exclusive on one level. Uh, Of course, the disposition of Jesus is utterly inclusive. The Bible says that he he desires for all people to come to the knowledge of him. It's an utterly inclusive posture. Yet, the means through which he does it is also utterly exclusive. You see, like, Jesus says, I'm actually Lord. And, And so, I can't really just be added to another system of thought a practice, or religion. Like, it doesn't work like that. You can't just add me in. And so the integrity of the gospel is actually lost when you make Jesus one among equals. If he's one among equals and other religious teachers or figures or whatever, then the entire gospel actually doesn't hold integrity anymore. And so there's a word, by the way, for mixing gods. It's called syncretism. You could say it with me. Syncretism. That was a good job. 9 a.m. got it too. All right. So, syncretism is when you really, you're mixing gods. And Jesus says, you cannot work like that with me. I, I, I can't mix because I am either Lord or I'm not. The third reality is we have to refuse to let our prior tastes determine our future desires. We have to, to refuse letting our prior tastes determine our future desires. You see, Jesus doesn't really fit into our ways, and he calls us, in fact, into his way. And yet he warns the audience, and he says in this passage, that those with a taste for the old wine don't desire the new, because they say, the old's good. I'm great. Things are well. And so we, we have to be careful not to be so tied to the ways that we've liked connecting with God that we miss the ways that he's desiring to connect with us. That, that we miss the ways that he wants to stretch us and to grow us. And oftentimes we get stuck with how we like things, right? And what's familiar. And like, I like worship a certain way. Or I like a church program to do a certain thing. Or I, I like my world to be familiar. And those are not bad things in and of themselves. 
And yet, if we're not careful, we can prohibit ourselves from experiencing Jesus' presence in new and fresh ways because we're locked into what we think is superior. On a more basic level, some of you are here today and and your experience of life is totally self-satisfied. You are happy and you are good. You have your old wine. You have the things you want. You're basically a good person. You have the relationships you want. You have the career and the stuff you want. So why would Jesus matter? Why would you desire to taste and see that the Lord might be better? See, we have to be careful with that. And, And for some of you, you might be here today and I would just love and invite for you to sit with the question, could it be that what I conceive of as good and as the best might pale in comparison to the life Jesus is calling me to? You might might be here and you may be completely disconnected from a sense of God in your life and you might be fine with that. But could you sit with the question of if that's really fine? If you're really fulfilled and a life without him. And, and some of you are here today and you're, you've been following Christ and you have a sense on your heart of self-contentment. And ask the question, why is that there? Why is that there? So we have to be careful not to be so accustomed to a life that doesn't need God or connect with God that we end up not even desiring what Jesus brings and what his presence means in our life, that, that we end up missing the life he promises because we're so self-satisfied with the life we've determined for ourselves. Because if he is who he says he is, then nothing we have, nothing we've made for ourselves, nothing we've determined as the good old wine will really stand up. Rather, he's made everything to point to himself, and he's at the center of what life really is about. I always joke with my dad about food. He is extremely picky about what he eats. Um, not in like the health nut kind of way. Like that's like a pretty like decent picky. But like in the, I've always enjoyed this, and I, if I haven't tried it at this age, like I'm not going to try it, right? And in fact, my father-in-law is the same, right? Like he has an even like stricter. Uh, guideline. Like, we'll go to restaurants and they will offer water to him, but he is an ex-water plant operator. And so he, every time, says, I know what they put in that stuff. And he, like, literally will not drink water at a restaurant. Or maybe ever. I'm trying to think if I've ever seen him drink water. So, and, and the man lives in San Diego, so go figure. So, but my, our, our dads, like, have this thing where they know what they like and what they don't like. And on one level, that is commendable. It's like, you picked your thing and you stuck with it. Way to go, man. But on the other hand, like, I think, I think about things like guacamole. And I'm like, you know, dad, you've never had the joy of a salty tortilla chip filled with heaven. Like, avocado and onion and like so good and you've missed it your whole life like do you think that maybe maybe it would be good or like sushi like you're like oh it's disgusting I'm like no man it's so good uh, we were we were at spaghetti factory like a few weeks ago and i was like my dad ordered a salad and they were like what do you want to just a lemon like like really dad a lemon try the creamy pesto for the love it is the best thing on the whole menu right like my gosh man and so, this is so often us in, the, in our walk with God, where we think, I know, I know what I want. And we limit our options down to the familiar, and to the controllable, and to the things that we have determined ahead of time that are right and good. 
And yet, we try to force that container around the life-giving presence of Jesus. And he says, you can't put new wine in old wineskins for the love. Come with me, trust me, follow me into a life. So where we miss the sufficiency and the goodness of trusting and following Jesus, we're like my dad and father-in-law just just narrowed in on one thing. We prevent ourselves from entering his way because we're, we're just content with the familiar ways. Finally, last thing is this. Um, we, we have to be careful to form our practices around the centrality of Jesus. You see, the controversy about fasting was really all about a lack of practice that was expected of a godly person. And see, when Jesus excuses his disciples from fasting, when he excuses himself, right, it's because they have found the very presence of God. See, they don't have to show a, an attempt at piety. They're with God himself. And so Jesus summons us to center all of our practices, all that we do around him. See, there's times appropriate for fasting. There's times appropriate for prayer and for study and other things. But the point isn't the practice. The point isn't the exterior. The point is the person. And so we would miss the passage entirely if we didn't walk away understanding that the heart of God is not about the right practice per se, but it is about the right relationship with the person that expresses itself in practices. See, Isaiah 58 is this great example where God confronts Israel and he says, Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure. You're doing the right thing from the wrong heart. So you oppress all your workers. You, you, you hold a fast to quarrel and fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. See, your expression, your practice isn't communion with God. It's just noise without me. And so he says, this is the fast that I choose. To loose the bonds of wickedness. To undo the straps of the yoke. To let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. Who does that sound like, friends? Sounds like an awful lot like Jesus, doesn't it? In Luke chapter 4, quoting Isaiah 61, the Spirit of Yahweh has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, right? To let the captives free, to give sight to the blind, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And that is what Jesus brings. He brings the true, right relationship with God, expressed in real righteousness from the heart. And so you see, at the heart, God is looking for a heart expressing right relationship with him and right relationship with the other. And so that's what we celebrate when we come to the table today. We come forward here in just a second. We come to celebrate the one means through which our relationship with God and other are ultimately made right. The one through whom we become righteous. We do it in a meal. And it's one that ultimately looks forward to the wedding feast that history is anticipating. See, Revelation 19 has this beautiful image of the Lamb, which is a title for Jesus, the one who has been slain and resurrected, the victorious one who's paid for sins once and for all, the wedding feast of the Lamb and the bride, the church, that heaven and earth will be married for all time. The presence of God will be with his people But you know, this meal, this feast is grounded in a cost. Someone always ends up paying for a wedding. And Jesus has said, I've paid the price. I've paid the price for the wedding. I've done it with my body, my blood.
Would you come to me? Would you rest in what I've paid? It's a great gut check moment for us as we come to the table today to say, how is my relationship with the living God? Do I relate to him like he longs to relate to me? Can I come before him and trust his sufficiency, his completion, his permanence of love, and worship him there? Let's go to the table, friends. Let's rest in what he's paid and go to him, commune with him. Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for the the son you have sent to bring your kingdom, your righteousness, and to bring it into our lives through the spirit that you send to indwell us and empower us for new life. Lord, as we come to the table, commune with us, speak to us, and help us to hear and respond to you in faith. In Jesus' name, amen.